Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. For a while there, there was kind of a scared straight model for talking about the effects of climate change. The idea seemed to be that if people got enough information, they would act out of fear. Al Gore was probably the modern godfather of this approach in popular culture. Some people fight with a vulnerability to despair. But this is Gore during a TED Talk just this past summer. Do not be vulnerable to despair. And he's taking an approach I hear far more often these days, a message better calibrated for the age of youth climate activism and the anxiety that surrounds it. Then if you doubt that we as human beings have the will to act, please always remember that the will to act is itself a renewable resource. I see this approach in pop culture, movies, books, even video games that fall under the umbrella of cli-fi. Even in the most inhospitable of places, life finds a way. Cli-fi, or climate fiction, is less about depicting societal collapse and more about adaptation, and the will to act. We just need to give it a helping hand. This is Terra Nil. The mobile game Terra Nil looks like any other in your app store. Your favorite annual book lists are now bound to include a title with a climate change backdrop. So what are the ideas fueling this movement? How do authors and artists draw people into this work with a message? And how do they do it without the hand-wringing, doom, panic, and anxiety that could overwhelm the very audience that they want to reach, that would convince you to embrace the will to act? I'm Audie Cornish, and this is The Assignment. I read a book that turned me on to this genre during the pandemic. It was written before COVID, but it was one of those weirdly prescient books a lot of us picked up during our quarantines and imagined a world coping with the grief that follows a plague. And it was both the most depressing and the most hopeful thing I had ever read. Here's the author. I'm Sequoia Nagamatsu. I'm the author of the novel How High We Go in the Dark. I'm also an associate professor of creative writing at St. Olaf College in Minnesota. Now, I wanted him to swap notes with the creators of Terra Nil, that video game I mentioned. It's a game that starts you off not with a weapon and a villain, but with a wasteland, one you have to revive using technologies both real and imagined. And it was both the nerdiest and most creative world-building game I'd ever played. My name is Sam Alfred. I'm the lead designer on a video game called Terra Nil. It's an ecosystem reconstruction game. I work for a studio called Free Lives. We're based in Cape Town in South Africa. They don't know each other, but they have a lot in common. Mainly that when it comes to storytelling, the smaller and more meaningful the idea, the better. The initial kernel was a response to death. And... You know, Which could be done in a lot of ways, right, though, right? Like, right. there could have been a car crash. There mm-hmm. could have been a fire. Right. Um, but you choose an Arctic plague unveiled by... Um, 
global warming and right, right, <laughs> and ice melt in, mm-hmm. in the Arctic. Right. So a lot bigger. A lot bigger, but but the novel really began kind of a much smaller, and I think in some ways that kind of led to the evolution of the novel being very human-centered. Um, the novel began um, years ago with the death of my own grandfather and trying to deal with an event like that on a very personal level. Um, so when I introduced the idea of a pandemic that was climate-induced, I was really bring together an intimate space and sort of small actions, families, friendships, relationships with this much larger canvas. And acknowledging that the climate discussion at this point and possibly in the future is the undercurrent of it is grief. Yes. Grief and I think connection and our sort of sometimes inability to connect. But the grief part of it, right? Yes. That like, hey, mm-hmm. we didn't fix this mm-hmm. yes. in time. Right. And I understand you're a professor, so you actually deal with Gen Z, right? Yes. Yeah. And and mm-hmm. I often hear, like on TikTok and mm-hmm. elsewhere, them talking in the context of climate grief, climate anxiety. Oh, definitely. Um, essentially, my students are very despondent about the fact that their parents and maybe their older siblings don't seem to care about each other or the planet in order to really um, engage with the solutions that we do have. So here's where I'm going to bring in Sam, because you have designed a game that is fundamentally solutions-oriented. And I think of so many video games as being about world-building. Right. Explain how Terra Nil works. People encounter a wasteland that they have to revitalize. Exactly. A place that's on the surface of it, that you can come in and actually somehow turn things around. Because with Terranil, ultimately, is it's a game about hope. And it's a game about being able to make a difference. And it is a fantasy. It's absolutely a fantasy because you can place machines down in your wasteland in Terranil that just magically clean the toxins out of the soil and allow you to plant... Um, new vegetation, which you can then grow into more biodiverse species. We see Terranil as a game about hope, as a game about, hey, the real world's not this simple, but you don't have to give up. Sequoia, I see you nodding a lot. Yeah, because I think that really speaks to at least what I hope readers get out of how high we go in the dark. There's a lot of death in the novel, a lot of tragedy, certainly, since it's this worldwide pandemic, far worse than what we've experienced but ultimately, it is a narrative about hope, about the various permutations, how we can reach out to one another, both on small scales and large scales, to think of a better future. Like the pandemic in, in my novel was really a reset button, a hard reset button that allowed individuals and governments to think about what we can do better, you know, both for our our communities and and for the world at large. Both of you have talked about hope as an end goal. I want to talk about the path to getting there because the stories you tell in your creative work, like they're about that journey fundamentally. In Terra Nil, there's not anything to shoot. There's not a bad guy who cuts in and is like, ha, 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 we were going to buy this land. Like, there's Mm -hmm. none of that. Like, why did you choose not to have a villain? Ultimately, we felt that there are hundreds and thousands of video games about people, and we wanted to make a video game about nature. 
And so we really just, there are no people in our game. And whether we could have told a different story by having characters and villains and heroes in our game, undoubtedly, but uh, this was the story we wanted to tell. We wanted the natural world to be the main character in our game. Hmm. I love that you say that, Sam, because I think with climate fictions of, of any sort, I think at this point, so many people can fill in the gaps. It is our reality. And even though COVID, the pandemic hadn't started when I wrote this novel, I think because of pop culture, I didn't want to write the movie Outbreak again in my novel. Right. People could right. fill in the gaps. So the star of my, my, my book was never the pandemic. It was always the people. It was always hope. I would say it's not just hope, it's cope. <laughs> right. <laughs> like because we're also in a in a moment where it's about adaptation. It's about how will we live? It'll you know, like I think those are the questions we're on now. This is not to put aside the attempts to kind of stave off the worst case scenario. But Sequoia, with you, I feel like the novel was you mentioned grief, you mentioned hope, but a lot of it was just the day to day of living a new reality. Oh, well, for sure. I mean, you need you need to be able to cope, as you say, and adapt in order to kind of get to the next day where you're in a place mentally and emotionally, individually and as a society to actually start thinking about change. So you're going through those steps of grief chapter by chapter. You're coping. I grew up a sci-fi reader, and that also always felt a little bit dismissed. Not just because you were nerds <laughs> reading it, but for some reason, sci-fi is considered kind of silly, um, even though to me it was always grappling with real-world current events in a way that was accessible. To, like, to, this seems so straightforward to me as a kid. But I grew up understanding to be a little bit embarrassed of my sci-fi interest, and uh, now it's cool. It doesn't matter. I, I, um, but I, you I you described your— <laughs> You were, Sam? Okay. <laughs> yeah, right? You feel a little like, okay, I guess this isn't cool, but even though it seems really cool. Right. I mean, I think in some ways the nerds have won, and then the nerds, then the nerds have been winning for quite some time. If you look at pop culture— <laughs> it's all sci-fi and fantasy. But I think the, the space overall is becoming much more complex and welcoming. And I think viewers and readers are becoming uh, more aware um, that, that sci-fi and fantasy and even horror are places for serious introspection and reflection about societal oh, issues. yeah, that's true. I mean, that's if you look true. at Jordan Peele, I mean, that's horror, but it's deeply looking at issues of race and systemic racism. Battlestar Galactica, yes, there's fighting, <laughs> but the reimagined series is also much more complex. We, for uh, me, it's, yeah, go ahead, Sam. Uh, I, I just thought to add, um, we encountered this this, this this dialogue in a slightly different way in the game design space, which is that we, we find ourselves wondering why are there so many games about fighting? And I think the conclusion, not just myself and my, 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 my peers have drawn, but um, indie game developers who care about this question large have drawn is that it's to do with um, how easy it is to understand because of this kind of, this path dependence, this notion that you don't have to explain anything as a game designer if there is a sword on the ground and the player can pick it up and swing it at an enemy it's a whole lot less work than giving them i don't know a rake 
and or a watering can <laughs> or yeah or, or in your book the tools to do a controlled burn to save their forest <laughs> i was like what <laughs> this seems complicated yeah. and you're right that's different than fight and that's different from fiction right because readers are not going to have that option right so they are going to if they're not a sci-fi reader and they see something like how high we go in the dark as a sci-fi and they're not they, they don't want to be on the spaceship <laughs> on a certain chapter, then there's going to be a little bit of a learning curve in terms of— I didn't of, even want to tell my mm-hmm. husband about the spaceship mm-hmm. part. Right. I was like, you have to read this book. It's amazing. Right. And I just was like, but I'm not going to mention the spaceships because like, he's a <laughs> snob about fiction in general. Uh, I, I loved it, just for the record. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I felt that twinge yeah. of like, ugh. But th- th- then there's the term cli-fi. And the term speculative. There are all of these categories that are often used by the industry and by readers to mask genre or to say, this is sci-fi, but it's kind of literary. It's fantasy, but it's not what you're thinking. It's important. It's important, right? (laughs) It's actually fascinating to hear you both talk about this because this is also the problem that climate scientists and climate activists have. They don't always have a ready soundbite, mm-hmm. right, like to right. help people engage on an idea. And it sounds like even though you're doing it in fiction, it's still not easy. Nuance gets lost. Mm-hmm. And I think oftentimes with soundbites, I think both for scientists and maybe especially activists, there's disagreement about what that soundbite should be. There is so many different ways of entering that conversation that there's often arguments within that community. After the break, the personal experience that influenced Terra Nil. It was called Day Zero, and there were movements all over the city for let's avoid Day Zero. Um, and we had water rations. When it got really bad, people were allotted 50 liters of water per person per day. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Apollo, the, the god of music, was also the god of medicine. Right? So there, there's been a long time link between music and, and sound and health. That is my favorite fact of the month. <laughs> Apollo, the god of music, was also the god of medicine. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Let's explore the world we're living in every weekday with On Point from WBUR, Boston's NPR. Find and follow On Point wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Assignment. I'm Adi Cornish. 
In 2018, Cape Town, South Africa, was in the midst of a water crisis. We live in a, a geographical location with wet winters and dry summers. And uh, we'd had a whole series of less wet than normal winters, year on year on year. Um, and eventually, to the point where the dams that supply Cape Town with water were running incredibly low, and they were going to run out of water um, if rains basically didn't come for, for, for the following winter in 2018. And, um, and the government called this this day, if it was to come... <laughs> it was called Day Zero. Day Zero. Yeah. It was called Day Zero. And there were movements all over the city if it let's avoid Day Zero. And uh, we had water rations. When it got really bad, people were allotted 50 liters of water per person per day. And we should say that this is supplying water to... Uh, almost 4 million people. So (laughs) it's a large number of people you're trying to communicate this information to. Yeah, yeah. And also with an infrastructure that is not set up to be able to ration a resource like this. There was a lot of civil pride and a lot of banding together and people wanting to help out. Is that surreal for a video game designer? uh, It was surreal, I think. It was surreal just as a modern human. It really put into perspective that despite all the sophistication of the modern world, we're still reliant on water falling from the sky. That happened before we designed the first Terranol prototype. And while Terranol wasn't explicitly influenced by the water crisis and, and day zero, it's impossible to live through an experience like that and, not, and be a, a creative person and not have that influence your work in some way. We should just give people the ending of that story and that you do have water. You're actually taking a sip of water while I'm <laughs> saying that. So people can feel better about that, that the the city did manage to, um, through these big communications, the campaigns, and through uh, kind of rationing and some engineering solutions, did find a way to maintain its water supply. Do people still talk about Day Zero, though? Is it still... It's It's one of these things where... You see posters still that are up saying, let's avoid day zero. Please use the hand sanitizer instead of washing your hands. And it's like there's this cultural history. Haunting. Haunting (laughs) the city. People don't talk about it that much, but the evidence of it is still there. Sequoia, for you... Are there any kind of, do you have any personal experiences with climate um, that kind of brought you into this creative writing space? I mean, I think climate, but also just, I think, conservation and and environmental issues in general. Um, For years, when I was younger, as a teenager and in my early 20s, I was heavily involved in in environmental activism. So, Oh, what got you into it? I think just... uh, just reading from a really early age, my grandfather like subscribed to me to like National Geographic, Ranger Rick, all of these magazines. So I, the seed was planted very early on. And when I actually had some agency for myself, I began joining environmental act- activist organizations. How old were you? I was, I mean, in my, in my 20s, I was organizing events nationally for, for a student arm of the Sierra Club. 
I think part of it was just my my love of reading very early on, and I think part of it was my family. And I lived in Hawaii for part of that time was just this connection to nature. You know, a lot of the classes I took in elementary school were deeply focused on this connection with nature, myth and nature, humanity and nature. And so a lot of that, I think, really stayed with me in terms of my interests as I got older, right? And so this idea in terms of activism of messages getting convoluted stayed with me. And I I knew that when I wanted to write something that was climate adjacent, that I wanted to control the message. I wanted to control this message of, like, human reaction. Would the Sequoia Nagamatsu of then play Terra Nil? Probably. And I, I mean, the, the Sequoia Nagamatsu of now would would play Terra Nil. <laughs> I, I mean, I love gaming, and I love the possibilities that, that gaming kind of gives us in terms of thinking about our own choices and the consequences of our choices. It's interesting hearing you talk about being inspired from a young age and and that leading you and planting the seed of your interest in conservation and and the environment because I feel like that's sort of what all fiction can do but that's possibly what we're trying to do with Terra Null is that we're not trying to tell you you can fix the climate we're trying to inspire you we're we're hoping to reach people reach young players and get them to think about these things in different ways and be inspired. And, you know, maybe the fact that we have a coral reef restoration mechanic in Terra Null will mean that someone someday decides to actually embark on their own coral reef restoration because they now know that it exists. What message would you have for other creatives who care about this issue? You must have picked up a do or a don't in the process of trying to talk about these things and also doing the work of still being creative, right? Like not being weighed down by delivering a message. I mean, I think one thing that I think creatives, and I tell this to my stu- my creative writing students, is that if you have if you have the the mission of delivering a message at the forefront of your mind, the creative project is going to feel constrained. So I I almost never start with message. Wait, how do you really say it to them? I, I tell them to start with the heart of of your narrative, to start with a character, to start with a place that you love and you're interested by. So if you're interested by a forest or a spaceship or whatever it might be, let whatever message that you want to convey emerge from that organically. You know, because we we have so many stories and movies that are so message oriented and we people don't like to be taught. People don't want to be told what to do, but they might be affected if they're emotionally changed and if they feel they have some agency over the story. Yeah, that sounds that sounds perfect. I think Far too many games that are trying to make an impact in the world start with that as the departure point, and they end up, no one plays them because they're not good games. The thing I, I've taken away from from, from my experience um, working on Terranol is that there, there may be analogs for this in other creative mediums, but in video games, people want to win the video game. If you want to make your players care about something, you have to make it the way they win. And so the way you win Terra Null is you care about biodiversity and you care about recycling. 
So for me, that was the kind of the biggest light bulb moment was uh, if you want if you want people who just want to win the game, yeah, to care about something, you just make it the way they win. There's no reason for it to be capital gain or population growth or number of people you can kill. You just have to make something the way... Feel like a win. Exactly. And Sequoia, as dark as your novel is, I have to say by the end, it does feel like a win. It's it's a win, right. And I, and I think, you know, for fiction writers, you know, I think my end goal is to make readers feel something. And it might be a, it might make you cry in parts or maybe in, in, in large parts, but I think feeling something will kind of help you reflect on who you are and, and kind of how you're connected with other people. Sugoya Nagamatsu is the author of How High We Go in the Dark. Sam Alfred is the video game designer of Terra Nil. Now, this episode is part of CNN's full coverage of COP28. That's the annual international climate summit convened by the United Nations. And you can find more of that coverage at CNN.com slash road to COP. And that's it for today's episode. If you liked it, please share. If you loved it, go ahead, give us five stars and a review. It really helps people discover the show. The Assignment is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Lori Gallaretta. Our senior producer is Matt Martinez. Our engineer is Michael Hammond. Dan DeZula is our technical director. And Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of CNN Audio. Support from Haley Thomas, Alex Manasseri, Robert Mathers, John Dianora, Lenny Steinhardt, Jameis Andrus, Nicole Pesaru, and Lisa Namoro. Special thanks, as always, to Katie Hinman. And we'll be back in your feeds on Tuesday. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.